Welcome, Welcome to the Competitive 40K Podcast, brought to you by Vanguard Tactics, 40K Codex Analysis, List Building, Strategy Development, Game Theory, Mentoring. Our mission, to help you become a better player and to raise the level of the game both on and off the tabletop. Here's your host, Stephen Box. Hey, and welcome back to now the second episode of the Courthouse Podcast and Show. And I'm once again joined with Eddie. How are you doing, Eddie? Good, cheers, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thanks today, mate. Very well. Um, so obviously we've had some fantastic feedback, haven't we, on the first episode? We have, yeah. It's been very positive, which is good to see. Yeah, and I think it's really helped people sort of clear up some of that confusion, as often some of these more meticulous rules that we've been looking at can sometimes cause a little bit of overwhelm and um, we just want to make sure that you are or we can help clear some of that up for you and give you a little bit of clarity on what is the fairest thing to do with a more unbiased approach and also uh, giving this a bit of a sort of 360 perspective on these rules and how they may be interpreted at the table. Exactly. So Eddie, what are we talking about on today's show? So today we're talking about priority. Okay. And what do you mean by that? So several abilities um, in the game can go off at once or at the same time in a a particular phase. And we're going to discuss exactly what order they should take place in, because it can often be a little bit confusing in terms of whose turn it is and who gets priority and which order they can start off. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is one of those things that can sometimes crop up at the table and all of a sudden you find yourself in a 10 minute chat with your opponent, not quite knowing where to look in the rule book. And this is eventually slowing down your time, isn't it? So um, we want to speed this up for you. And on the blog post, uh, we will hopefully put all the show notes for you so you know exactly what pages we're referring to if this comes up. You can use it as a quick reference guide to know exactly what part of the book to look at so you could show your opponent or discuss it if it comes up at the table. Yep. Now remember as well, this is only our interpretation. So remember, with all things, if you're ever unsure, the best thing to do is email your TO ahead of time to ask for them on how they would like things to be ruled, especially if you're trying to add in this certain ability or you know it's applicable to your army. Or ask your opponent before you start rolling dice to come to a fair, unbiased agreement prior to rolling dice and before decisions are made. And I think that's really, really crucial. So remember, this is just our interpretation, but not, you know, this isn't like the official interpretation, if that makes sense. So just please bear in mind, ask your TO or ask your opponent. And that's always the fairest thing to do first. Yeah, definitely. I'd say that's the golden rule when it comes down to these sort of interactions. Um, you know, then you get the final verdict and you know you're not going into an event with any surprises. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, some of these things we'll cover. We will tell you the more black and white answer. But if there's a grey area, then we'll give you our more interpretation where there could be rules for looking at it in this different ways. And one of the rules today has caused me and Eddie to chat for the last 30 minutes off um, camera or off recording into how we would both see this and we both had opposing views. Um, but again, we're going to um, thrash that out in today's show. Also, at the end of this show, we're going to pick a couple of your questions that you've given us, uh, one from Facebook, uh, one from Instagram, if we've got time, maybe another. Uh, so thank you to everybody that has sent in a question for us. Um, I think we've got some really, really good listener questions for later. Yeah, keep them coming. 
uh, the more the better. And uh, we'll try and cover as many as we can at the end of each episode. Absolutely. Okay, then, Eddie, kick us off. So, yeah, I mean, we've uh, we've got oftentimes in games, we have a occasion where two rules will sort of have to happen at the same time. And um, I think it'd be good to know your opinion on this, Steve, as a playtester. Like, when do you think they should happen? What order? Well, this is sometimes depending on the wording of the abilities. And then if there's no clarification in terms of when that happens from the abilities in question, then we typically go down to whoever's turn it is gets to pick the priority or gets to pick the order. So the first example I'm going to give you is from Deep Strike. Typically, the word can't will override the word can. So for example, if you can't Deep Strike or come in from reserve of 12 inches, even if you have a stratagem that allows you to come closer, let's say Gene Steeler Colt have got one that allows you to come in within just outside of three inches, the rule that says you cannot go within 12 would take precedent regardless of whose player's turn it is. However, when it does come to things like um, two abilities happening at the exact same time, we would go with whoever's turn is taking place can pick the order in which those um, abilities or stratagems are resolved in. Yeah, it's very powerful for the uh, the player whose turn it is, obviously, that giving them co- total control over that ordering can really change the way the game would play out, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a couple of examples to share, don't we? We do. I actually had one come up in a game recently um, where both of us had an ability that takes place before the first battle round. Um, so I was playing Dark Angels, and they have an ability called The Hunt, um, which allows me to move one of my Ravenwing units up to nine inches away from my opponent's units in deployment zone. Um, and my opponent had the Lord of Deceit Warlord trait, which allows them to pick up and redeploy three of their Phobos units. So obviously we had a discussion about who should go first, uh, which ability is going to happen before the other. And um, it's important because obviously me as the player with the Ravenwing, if I go first, then although I get to put my unit wherever it needs to go, my opponent can then reactively redeploy to his advantage by you know moving units away from me and that sort of stuff. Whereas if my opponent goes first, he can move a unit of infiltrators up into the midfield and keep my bikes 12 inches away from them now because they can't come within um, 12. Um, so in this case, I won the roll-off to go first, and therefore my ability took place first, uh, meaning that when he got to use his Lord of Deceit, he had to keep his units nine inches away from the biker unit that I pushed up into the midfield. Um, now, often, abilities like this will state which order they take place in. So the Hunt, for example, states that if both players have units that can move before the first turn begins, the player who is taking the first turn moves their units first. Whereas Lord of Deceit also states that if both players have abilities that redeploy units, you have to roll off and the winner chooses who redeploys theirs first. Obviously, that doesn't affect the Hunt because that's a move and not a redeploy, but it's quite sort of integral in that phase of the game to see who's actually going to get control of that midfield. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because like you said, the hunt specifies, and this is the same for the Blood Angels one with the Death Company, whoever's turn is taking place, that unit moves first. So if you had Blood Angels versus uh, Dark Angels, obviously the Blood Angels would win because they're just way cooler. But aside from that, aside from that, you know, we'll put those biases to one side. Um, (laughs) 
obviously whoever's turn go is really clean. Obviously that they're both ninth edition books, really, really clean in terms of how they work, but they're both pre-game moves and therefore the player whose turn is taking place goes first. Yeah, nice and easy. When you've got a move versus a redeploy, well, which one happens first? Because do you redeploy before you move? Do you move before you redeploy? So this is one of those really interesting things that I think what you did was the logical best thing to do. You looked at, number one, the most recent codex, and see what that says, which is the Dark Angel one, which says whoever's turn is taking place moves their unit first, which is brilliant. That's exactly what I think should happen. Because I think as the attacker, what would be horrible for your opponent is if they redeploy. So let's say it was based on a roll-off, right? This is going to give your opponent a really bad or feel bad, I think. So you're going second and your opponent gets to get gets the alpha strike off you, then you decide to redeploy on a roll-off, and let's say the person who's going first also decides to, or let's say loses the roll-off, therefore you have to redeploy first, and then the player going first can redeploy around your redeploy and then still get the alpha on you. Yeah, it gets a bit of a mess, and it doesn't feel great. No, because going second, you've not only redeployed, you've, you've also spent CPs, and your, and your opponent's still redeployed around yours anyway. So again, this is one of those things. That I think you did the logical thing. You went first with the player whose turn is taking place. Um, and then that way, the person that can then choose to redeploy if they so wish. Yeah. Which I think is probably the best and fairest way to resolve those abilities. Yeah, definitely. It can be tricky. And like you said, if, if the ability says which order it needs to happen in, that's great. It's really handy. It makes it super clear. Um, but otherwise it does come down to who's got the first turn. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, you both have to state if you're going to use those abilities or not, because they happen at the same time. Yeah. Um, so you need to be, you know, letting your opponent know what you're going to do. Um, so again, it's just one of those things to in order to keep fairness. Okay, cool. I really like that. Any other examples that we can look at this from? So, yeah, I believe we had a... Um a question from Gervin, who's in our VT Academy the other day. Um, I don't know if you'd like to run through that one for us. Yeah, let's, yeah. To, yeah what, is the, what was his example? Um, so he was playing Craft Worlds against Sisters of Battle, or Adeptus Sororitas, if you want to be correct. And uh, during his opponent's turn, a unit of Seraphim was set up from Deep Strike um, and used Deadly Descent, the stratagem, um, which allows him to shoot with them at the end of his movement phase. Um, so at this point, Gervin, who was obviously playing Craft Worlds, used the forewarned stratagem, which, um, which allows him to immediately shoot with a unit near his Farseer at the unit that just deployed. So who do you think, in this example, shoots first? Well, yeah, again, really interesting one. Now, this one's a little bit cleaner, and I'm going to tell you why, but then we're going to look at potentially a more complex scenario. So what we've got is a unit coming in from reserve, and when they're coming in, they have to use that stratagem, right? Yep. So, for example, the unit drops in, and depending on the wording, the Crawford one is really clear. It says immediately. So, as soon as the Adeptus Sororitas unit is placed down, and that player is happy with their movement, and if you're a Crawford player, the first thing you need to ask is, are you finished? Is that unit staying there? So, basically, bring in an endpoint to where that unit then cannot be moved again. Yep. And immediately using the forewarned stratagem, because it happens at that point. Whereas 
the ability to shoot the Adeptus Sororitas unit happens at the end of the movement phase. So that'll be the very, very last thing you do before you move into the psychic phase. Whereas there could be multiple, it could be like 10 units coming in from Deep Strike. So let's say the Adeptus Sororitas unit comes in first. Do you want to do it or not? It's up to you. It's up to the Crawford player. Do you want to do it on the next one? It's up to you. So again, that happens immediately. And then whatever the Adeptus Sorority unit's got left, then it could potentially use this stratagem if it's the end of the movement phase. Yeah, precisely. If, however, this would be really rough on the Adeptus Sororitas player, if they have to declare it immediately and get to resolve it at the end, that would be really rough on that player. Yeah, because then they could lose a load of units and then that would really diminish the effectiveness of that strat. Yeah. However, if both units stated that this happens immediately upon coming in from reserve. So let's say the stratagem was worded slightly differently and it said immediately as you land, you can shoot. And the Crawford one says immediately as a unit lands, you can shoot at that unit as if it was the shooting phase. The player whose turn is taking place could pick which one resolves first. Yeah, so obviously you as the sisters player, you drop your unit and you'd be like, right, my turn, I'm going to pick my guys to shoot first and then you can use your ability afterwards. Yes. Now, let's say you picked a unit of Seraphin that dropped in to use this ability on and the unit which wanted to be forewarned, I believe it's an infant, or I think it's any unit within a certain radius of a, a Farseer. Yes, correct. It's within six inches. Uh, it has to be visible too as well. Let's just say it's the one unit. Let's just say it's a unit of three Dark Reapers. Now, because both of these happen at the same time, you still have to declare it at the same time. So you still have to spend the CPs, but it's resolved with the whoever's turn is taking place first. Yeah, exactly. So it's really, really strong in terms of the attacker's priority there, getting to pick. Now, obviously, as we've mentioned with this in particular strategy, it happens at the end. So this Crawford player would still get to go first. Yeah, it's nice and clean again. Um, but it's an interesting example to see what would happen if they both were immediate. Yeah. And the worst thing that you can ever get into a situation of is having a roll off. We really don't want roll offs in the game, um, personally, because I don't think you want to put that down to a roll off because if you've got two conflicting rules, um, that you're unsure of, you do not want to have a roll off every single time, because if you're just unlucky, then your opponent could gain a few advantages over you over the course of the game. I'd much rather know what's happening and then I can play around that ability. Yeah, we like nice clear rules and I think roll-offs can often feel bad um, because it really is just a 50-50. Yeah, and they typically are done so that people um, don't have to check the rule book, which I think is a little bit lazy because it will be there as we've spoke about. There is a rule in there which will basically dictate what's what. Yeah, definitely. You just got to find it and uh, present it to your opponent, obviously, if, if it's not already been discussed. But hopefully you will have already discussed it with them prior to the game. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Any other examples? Uh, yeah, so we've got a, a bit of a trickier example, um, which is to do with uh, if a Space Marine player had um, rights of war on a captain um, and then also had an ancient with steadfast example. Uh, these are both warlord traits. Um, let's say that both of these are affecting a unit, say aggressors. What order, Steve, do you think that they would be resolved in? 
Okay, so this is really tough. This is the this is the tricky one. So rights of war, in a nutshell, gives a unit OPSEC. Correct. Steadfast example does exactly the same. It does. However, steadfast example also has the second bullet point saying if the unit already has OPSEC, then it counts as double. So does this mean, and there's a rare rule section, isn't there, in the back of a book that stipulates that a unit can be under the effects of multiple rules and there can be multiple benefits when these things are added together in some instances, not in all instances, in some instances. But it also states that if you have a unit that takes away OPSEC, so even if you're under the effects of rights of war and steadfast, if you have an ability that gets rid of OPSEC, you get rid of all of it, not just rights of war or steadfast, you get rid of all of it. A little bit like the fight first, fight last scenario. You just get rid of all of them. Even if you've got four fight lasts on you, only one's counted basically. Okay? Yeah, exactly. And you'd also lose any other benefits that that was sort of to do with OBSEC uh, that those were giving you. Yeah, so let's say it was a rule which basically said something along the lines as, I don't know, when receiving the benefits of OBSEC or the ability of OBSEC, you get plus one toughness. I don't know, something like that. You would also lose the plus one toughness. You would. Um, Now, this opens up a really interesting um, paradigm because it's not a command ability where you pick. And this also, when it comes to objective secured, you're either objective secured or you're not. And that happens, like, it's not like it only works in the shooting phase and it only works in the combat phase. This has happened, uh, objective secured happens essentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah in terms of our gameplay. So here's the scenario. If a unit is under the benefits of steadfast example, where it has OPSEC, and then if it already has it, it counts as double, then applying rights of war, which just gives you OPSEC, does absolutely nothing. Correct. If, however, the unit's under the effects of rights of war, i.e. you're getting OPSEC now, and then steadfast example is then applied, potentially there's an argument for you to be doubled. So you would count as two models. Yep. So you could either look at this in two ways. You could either always say it doubles up. That's one way of looking at it, which I don't think is particularly in keeping with a lot of the other rules that we've seen, like with fight last, fight first, and this whole um, obsec or not getting obsec gets rid of all of them. It kind of feels like you're either getting obsec or you're not, But the other way of looking at it is if you order in terms of moving a unit under the influence of or into the aura range of that model, then it would be the order in which these units were moved into that range would apply. So for example, let's take deployment. If you put down a unit with steadfast, let's say you've got a banner, yeah, with steadfast example, then we've got a captain with rights of war and we've got our unit of aggressors in this example. Yeah. Let's say you deployed your unit of aggressors first. You then applied, or you then deployed your banner with steadfast example. Okay. Yep. Are they now, is that unit of aggressors gaining OPSEC? It is, yeah. Because you still gain OPSEC in the deployment phase, right? Yeah, I mean, it's technically an aura, so you're, it's just constantly applied with when you're within range. Yeah. 
So then if you were to add a captain to the mix, is Rights of War actually going to do anything at this point? No. Technically, you won't get double obsec, obviously, in terms of just getting another stack of obsec. But the real question is... Because it's already been applied, right? Exactly, yeah. Which means that every time you moved your unit, you would need to move the aggressors out of all obsec ranges. You would then have to move the captain in first. Okay, that initial that initiates the obsec ability. And then you'd have to move the banner in after. And then that would apply double because it would be a yeah. logical sequence of the domino effect. Add one, add the second. If you do it the other way around, it's not going to do anything, which feels a little bit weird and janky, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It could be a bit of a gotcha moment to either player. Yeah. See, the other way that you could rule this is that whoever's turn is taking place gets to pick which happens first. So when it actually matters, when OBSEC, because let's be honest, OBSEC only matters when an objective is being contested or taken off you at a particular time or endpoint. So at the end of a movement phase or start of a turn or end of the command phase when you're actually scoring points, whenever that might be, that may be the point in which you just look at it objectively and go, cool, it's my turn. I'm going to pick rights of war kicks off first and then apply steadfast example. Whereas if it was your opponent's turn, they could pick that steadfast example applies first and then rights of war does nothing. Yeah, I think it's important to look at this. And, and if you look at the sequencing rules on uh, page 201 of the core book, it actually states um, the word resolved. So when you're looking at abilities, it's uh, it's about deciding which order they're resolved in. Now, obviously, we're looking at these two abilities as auras, which are constantly applying. That's fine. But... When you resolve them, that's when the order can come in, like you're saying, Steve. Yeah. So I think what we would be doing at this point is just having it as whoever's turn it is would resolve them as they see fit. Yeah. I personally would love it if it was just you only get double obsec if it's inbuilt to your data sheet. Yeah. So for example, if you're starting the battle with obsec already, so prior to deployment, prior to auras, prior to any other abilities like, um, you know, troop units pretty much have obsec, don't they, inbuilt? Yeah. If that's being applied on there, then that should be doubled. That's my, and then that will just keep it really simple. But yeah, it'd be much easier to, to keep track of, definitely. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, some clarification would be good. To be honest, that's how I would personally play it because it keeps it simple throughout all of the turns. So rules is written. I think the, the easiest way to do is like you use the correct term there when it's resolved at those key moments, you decide whose player's turn it is, rules is written. But for me, just to keep it cleaner, I would always like to put myself on the back foot when I play. So I would just play it as if it's a troop unit and it already comes with obsec, I would double it. And if I've got warlord, you know, a warlord trait with rights of war and some other abilities of obsec, then I'm just going to get obsec. Yeah. And I'm not going to start stacking them. That's how I would personally play it. And remember, guys, if you're listening to this show, you probably want to play the game in the fairest possible way. And often, if we want to, you know, I always think that there's a famous quote, isn't it, that you want to be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. And that's exactly what I would try to do. So for example, there's some really janky things I can do with an incarn now. So the incarn can, rules is written, appear within engagement range because it only stipulates that you have to be outside of an inch. 
And remember, engagement range now also equates to five inches high. So what I can do is pop up an engagement range of an enemy unit. But although I use the incarn and our rules as written could do that, I still don't do it because I don't feel like it's right. Because when that rule was written back in 8th edition, engagement range was only one inch. So now yeah, the rules exactly. changed. I want to do what I feel is fair. So again, this is where you is your... Or again, just resolve that with your opponent. Say, look, if I've got these two abilities, the best thing to do is either ask your TO how they want it ruled. So if I have a unit with rights of war and I have a unit with steadfast example, do I A, get the stack? Do I B, not get anything at all? Or do I C, pick depending on whose player's turn it is? And then give them the option to choose A, B or C. Yeah, I think that's about as fair as you can play it really. And, um, you know, again, obviously if you're at a tournament, then you need to get the correct ruling from them, um, from your TO. Yeah, because then, or you just discuss it with your opponent before A, B or C. There we go. So anyway, I think that's a really, really interesting rule interaction. Um, and again, hopefully we're just giving you some strategies in terms of dealing with this at the table. So the next one is, uh, you've got something here about manifesting psychic uh, powers. Yeah, so um, there are a couple of other words on priority in the rule books, um, one of which is manifesting psychic abilities. Um, there are obviously occasions where a rule could come into play that says um, a psychic power cannot be denied. And then at the same time, you're also being affected by a rule that says it's automatically denied or resisted. Now, when this happens, rules um, say basically the rule that cannot be denied takes precedence. Yeah. So again, that's very similar to the deep strike example. So cannot is overriding can. So although I think it's word bearers that currently have a a, rel- a, a stratagem that if you fail a power, you can spend a CP and you it, it's cast and it cannot be denied. And then there's like other stratagems, right, in the game that on a four plus you automatically deny that thing. So the cannot yeah. would trigger and then it just, there's no ifs or buts about it. You can't deny it, so don't try and waste any CPs. I mean, they can still spend yeah, the CPs, exactly. but it's just not going to do anything. Yeah, more fool them. Any others? Uh, morale, priority is another one, um, quite similar. Uh, so when we've obviously got these two directly conflicting rules, so let's say a unit is being simultaneously affected by a rule that says it auto passes morale, and then another says it auto fails morale. So in this case, rules that say it auto pass takes priority. And this also applies to rules that affect how many models might flee from a morale situation. And it's nice that they've clarified that because obviously, depending on whose player's turn it is, that would really mess that up, wouldn't it? Because you only are ever really taken to take morale in a situation when it's your opponent's player and they're just going to go, no, mate, you automatically fail it. It's my priority. So yeah. it's nice that, that that's been really clear and auto passes takes priority. That's great. Anything else? I think the last one is probably um, attacks. This okay. is uh, this is one that comes up probably slightly more. Um, so let's say that we have two rules again that cannot both apply. So we have, for example, uh, an attacking unit has an ability that allows it to always score a hit on a 2+. Like, take the Talon Master, for example. Um, but it's targeting a model with an ability that states that it can only be hit on a 6+. So what happens in this situation? Um, what actually happens is that the attacking model's rule takes precedence. Um, and one that always trips people up 
is obviously transhuman physiology, which states that it works irrespective of any abilities that the weapon or model making the attack may have. And that's why that can sort of take precedence. Yeah. And again, it's, it's good that they've got that clarification in. Yeah, definitely. And, and if it doesn't have that clarification, go with the attacker's priority. Um, again, and this is on page 88, the rare rules section of the Games Workshop chapter approved 2021 book, isn't it? It is, yeah. Perfect. So you can obviously check that out for yourself and you know where that is in the book. And often, even if this podcast helps you understand where these things are in the book, brilliant. That's just going to give you a little bit more clarity, a little bit more speed when you're at the table. Page 88, that's where I'm going to find this. Um, these weird interactions where things happen at the same time, so, which is awesome. Right, okay, so we're going to take a very short break and then we'll be back and we will be answering your listener questions. Today's show is sponsored by Foreground Publishing, premium pre-painted MDF terrain perfect for your Warhammer 40k 9th edition games as seen on the Vanguard Tactics stream and battle reports. Just unbox, build and play. And to order your set of terrain, just head over to www.foregroundpublishing.co.uk. This podcast is sponsored by Sea Studios, the leading commission painting service for tabletop miniatures. From placing your order, seeing the work in progress and receiving your stunning new models, Siege Studios delivers an incredible service and experience. One of the most exciting days I can ensure you is receiving that parcel at the door and unwrapping the best gift ever. To find out more about getting your army commissioned painted by the professionals, check out www.siegestudios.co.uk. Hey guys, we're back from the break. Um, so we have a couple of questions, one of which is from Ian Wilson on Facebook. He says that he recently played his Drakari into a Death Watch list, which was super skewed as an anti-Drakari list. His question is, in the post-game assessment of your army, your play, etc., after facing an extreme build which hard counters your army, how much weight do you give the matchup in future when designing your list and play style, and also... How do you not under slash over adjust? I would not give it any weight. Personally. So for example, there is always going to be a hard counter to your list. The only time in which you should consider changing the weight of your assessment and adjustments is when that hard counter to your list is at a significant portion of the event. So what I mean by that is, let's say there's one in a thousand players that's got the perfect counter to your army. So I'm going to give you an example of me. I went to a G, uh, I went to an RTT last weekend, turn one with my Harlequins. I played against three Dark Talons and three Talon Masters. Now, every objective was out in the open and... Literally, those Talon Masters pick a unit and they go D3 mortal wounds. And then when it shoots you, it hits. It does three mortal wounds per hit. So obviously, that is an extremely hard counter to my list because I cannot save. I don't have any save against those mortal wounds with Harkwinds. Gets no. rid of all of my minuses to hit. It gets rid of my minus one to wound. It, it, it gets past my minus six inch range, potentially, because they're flyers. And also it gets around the ability for me to take my runnable save. Now, Triple Dark Talon, Triple Talon Master is not a common list. If, however, I look down the, you know, event pack and, or I, I look through, I don't know, the event and let's say there's 30 players and 
10 out of those 30 are taking a very, very similar type build, maybe I need to start adjusting my list. But if it's one, yeah, one in 30, I've only got a one in th- a one in 29 chance or whatever it is of actually playing that opponent round one. And then even less likelihood in round two and three, because then it comes down to whether they um, won their first game or not. And if they're a very skew build, remember, they're also going to have very hard counters as well in other areas. So they may not get... So let's say this person's built their army to play Drakari. They might be really, really unlucky if they played somebody else. Well, sorry, they're actually going to be extremely lucky if they actually pair against Drakari game one because they're more likely to pair against something that's not Drakari game one. And then they have to fight their way through game one with a hard counter that counters an army that as you, you know, let's think of a rock, paper, scissors analogy here. Um, if your rock is, you know, designed to kill scissors and, up, you know, all of a sudden you're up against paper, like you're up against it. So you need to perform extremely well in round one just to hopefully get to round two where you may face some Drakari if they also won their game. So again, I don't think you can really worry about it too much. Your list is not going to be able to cater for everything. Like my list, my Harlequins list is good in, I would say, seven out of 10 matchups. And in the other three, I just have to play out my skin in order to do well. So, yeah, I mean, like with my Harlequins list at the moment, I've played six events at a tournament. I've won five out of six. So, so far, if I, I think if I take it to another event, I may get another three wins out of it or maybe two or three wins out of it. So by the time I've got my nine games in, I've probably lost two games maybe, which is a fair representation of my skill level with that army in, in its current balance. So don't worry about it too much. There's always going to be a hard counter. And as soon as you try and skew it for one thing, you're, en- you're going to end up losing some of your strengths from other areas of your list. And that's going to open up a gap somewhere else. So as soon as you tailor for one thing, you're going to open up yourself for another skew build somewhere else. All you need to do is understand how to play the mission, how to you know, work the objectives, how to score your secondary. And that way, if you can focus on that, you will outplay a bad matchup more often than not. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's always important to take the meta in mind, of course, but I think that people can, there's like a lot of bogeymen out there with like factions. Obviously we've seen Drakari rise recently and people are instantly skewing into them. And when we, when we see that, what happens is like you said, Steve, like if you skew into a very particular faction, you might not even face them. You know, are, are there going to be that many Jokari players with, you know, however many uh, racks it was or whatever. Um, so, you know, play your list as like an all cut takes all comers kind of list and think about the meta, obviously bear it in mind, but if you can just make your list do its job well, then you're not going to be hard countering some strange skew that might never come up um, and then struggling in all your other games. It's definitely a good point. Absolutely. No, really good question though. And like I said, don't give yourself a hard time. If you meet a hard counter, just take it on the chin, you know, learn, you would have probably made mistakes. And I expect if you'd have ironed out those mistakes, then you'd have made that game even closer. And then you keep repetition after repetition after repetition. The more experience you gain, you will learn to outplay that bad matchup. Yeah, exactly. That's all you can do. Yeah. Well, so what's the next question? So we've got another question um, from BC Pure Vinyl on Instagram. Um, so he's got a rules question that came up the other day uh, that he'd like us to clarify. 
Um, so he was attacking a unit of five Death Watch Terminators. One of them had a Storm Shield and, and Thunderhammer, and the rest had Lightning Claws. So he rolled six hits and then got four wounds at AP minus one. Um, the opponent then rolled each save one by one using the stats of the guy with the Storm Shield. So two up save, um, et cetera, et cetera. So far, so good. Now, on the third wound, he didn't make the save. So he removed a model, but he didn't remove the Storm Shield guy. Um, and then he, la- he rolled the last saves using the Storm Shield guy again. Now, Steve, what would you say has happened there? Is that the correct way of ruling that? Okay, so I think your opponent's done 50% of the things correctly, but then the other 50% incorrectly. So what's happened is Terminators have what? They've got two wounds, two or three wounds, Terminators now? Yeah, they do generally so they've have got three wounds. Three wounds, right? So therefore, Lightning Claws are normally only one damage, aren't they? They are. Which means if a Terminator was removed when one of the saving throws was failed, one of the Terminators would have already been down to one wound, correct? Correct. Now remember, when it comes to making a save, you have to continue to make saves on a model that's already took damage. Yeah. So you'd have to take these saves on the the dude with one wound left. So one of the Lightning Claw guys, he would have to take the first save, so it'd be on his three plus armor save on the, on the first roll, then on the second. And then if he then died on the third, so let's say you rolled a three, a five, and then a two, then yes, that model is then removed from the lightning claws. Then before you roll the fourth dice or the fifth dice, whatever it goes on to do, you can then start to take this on the guy with a storm shield. However, if you fail one on the storm shield, that wound has to be allocated to the model you just took the save to. So if you want, I don't know, Simon the shield bearer to take the wound, poor old Simon needs to suck it up. He just got shot in the face. And then you need to continue to take wounds on Simon until Simon, unfortunately, is dead. Yeah, it's a bit of a trade-off, but you've got the power of having that that shield there for that exact reason. And it would feel a a little bit dubious to then be throwing wounds onto other people when they weren't, in fact, the ones standing there tanking the damage with their shield. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's how you've got to imagine it, is Simon is stood in front of all his mates. He's like, lads, I've got this with my shield. Simon, unfortunately, pops his head up ever too slightly above his shield, gets one in the eye socket. He's taken a wound. He can't just go, oh, actually, Dave, can I take your eye out instead? Yeah, sure, I'll take it. No, it doesn't work like that. If Simon wants to be the Billy big man that he is and put his storm shield up front, he's got to take all them wounds. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the right way of playing it. Okay. Um, have we got time for one more question, do you think? Uh, yeah, are there any others that you've got, Steve? I'll let you pick one on the old Instagram. Okay. Now, remember, guys, if you want your question answered, all you need to do is head over to the Instagram account at the Vanguard Tactics, and um, we will put a post up every week before we record asking for your questions. It does also get put over to our Facebook account as well, so you could reply there like Ian did. Now, remember, you'll only get your question answered if you like our page. That is one caveat I'm going to put in. And if you don't mind, please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Give us a five star. Ideally, if you don't like us, then a one star is fine too, I suppose. Um, And then write us a review, something you found useful in it, because it really helps other people listen to our podcast. Um, And if you don't think people should listen, then leave us a bad review. 
totally up to you. But anyway, please don't do that. It's not nice. <laughs> so um, more of a sort of uh, general question rather than a specific rules question for you here. Um, we've got one from ADR Wargaming. Um, now, hopefully you'll know a little bit about this, Stephen, because I know you've been working on your sisters. Uh, he says, what's your take on the updated sisters? And specifically, do you see yourself moving away from Bloody Rose and towards some of the other orders that have been get- given a glow up? Well, we're going to be doing a full review myself and Jack soon on the Sisters Codex. We're going to be doing a full deep dive um, on the on this show, the Competitive 40K podcast. Myself and Jack needs just to find a good three hours where we can go through this together. This is a very intricate book. So I love combat. I absolutely love combat and getting that extra attacking combat is so nice, along with the stratagem that they have. Uh, Bloody Rose, which allows you to, I think, I believe if you roll a six to hit, you auto wound. Very effective, especially with some large units. But there are some other orders out there that I really like the look of. So a lot of people like the look of Ardent Shroud, which means you can advance and move and not suffer the and basically count as stationary, which is brilliant for shooting your retributors or advancing and firing your Paragon Warsuits. But I'm actually really liking the order of the martyred lady. Now, you get a miracle dice when one of your unit dies, which wasn't normally massive, but there's a secondary now that allows you to gain uh, gain victory points based on how many miracle dice and acts of faith you perform in your opponent's or your turn. Yeah. So it's a really good way of just helping you score secondary points. The other bullet point that they have, the order of the martyred lady is that when you're under your starting strength, you get plus one to hit. So if I lose one Repenture to Overwatch, I get plus one to hit because I'm no longer at my starting strength. Yeah, it's really good. Very powerful. And then if a character's killed, you can basically, whatever kills that character, you can go, you get plus one to the wound roll when you attack it. Also nice. Um, so I really like those sort of two abilities. And the best thing about the martyred lady is that you get to take Junith and Junith now, she's an absolute, not necessarily weapon, but she becomes a chapter master and also gives you, um, the benefits of light cover. Yeah, that's fantastic. Which I really, really like. And because of her points, I think it's 130 you can start to get her to be a to the last option. So if you bring all of your units down below, you know, or even 130 or below, Morvian Val could be a to the last. She could be a to the last. And then maybe it's one other unit or character. So I do like that as an option. So yeah, I'm kind of thinking that's where I'm going to go with things. So I've got Junif on order um, and hopefully I can get a painted before the weekend. Yeah, fantastic. But anyway, these are all great questions today. And so keep them coming in. It's fantastic. We love these rules, intricate ones. I think these are really, really helpful. Um, And a massive thank you to all of our show sponsors and also our academy students. Without the academy, this whole thing wouldn't even happen. Um, So remember, if you want to join a like-minded community, gain some confidence at the table and really get some clarity as to how to progress in the game, then do consider applying to our academy. Um, All the details for that are on the www.vanguardtactics.com website. And um, yeah, join the legendary students like Eddie here who, um, yeah, 
you're always on Discord, Eddie, aren't you? Playing TTS or other aspects of the game, whether it's yeah. debating people around rules um, or you're, you know, going into discussions and all that good stuff. And when we say debate, we mean that in a very positive, <laughs> friendly way. Yeah, we do, don't we? I think there's some fantastic, yeah. I mean, this podcast is actually derived from our rules courthouse um, section on Discord. It is. Um, you know, which is for our academy students to discuss these more intricate rules and look at it in a fair, unbiased way. So, yeah. And um, guys, thanks so much for all of your support on the podcast. It really means a lot. Eddie, thanks so much for your time once more. Thank you, Stephen. And we'll see you all next week on the Rules Court Files podcast. See you then. See you later. See you later.